Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The closer NASA gets to returning to the moon, the further away the moon seems to move. Contractors on the Artemis III project are having trouble with some basic items, like the spacesuits astronauts would need in the lunar lander itself. The Government Accountability Office has found now that uh, NASA may be too ambitious in its schedule for the initial launch. We get the latest findings from the GAO's Director of Contracting and National Security, Bill Russell. Bill, good to have you back. Nice to be here, Tom. And you've looked at this from time to time, and you're reporting there is some progress on the contractor's part, but it sounds pretty basic if they can't get the spacesuit done. I mean, what's going on? What's the latest findings here? One thing for context, this is incredibly complex. It's the first time we've tried to return to the moon in over 50 years. There's a reimagining of how to do that, not just to do one moon landing, but to create a sustained lunar presence and ultimately uh, set the foundation for human exploration of Mars. So I think that that ups the complexity a little bit. But what we found, uh, to your point, is that NASA's initial schedule is very ambitious when you compare it to um, the average time it takes equivalent NASA projects to go from start to finish. And we found it was about a year uh, faster than the average NASA project, even though there are extra complexities like being able to support humans safely, some of the technical challenges in fueling the lander, getting into orbit, testing that uh, all to meet a 2025 launch date. Right. So you've got a lander and then you've got the crew capsule that takes them up there. Then you've right. got the heavy lift rocket. Then you have the spacesuits that the astronauts have to wear. These are all being developed by industry on behalf of NASA, correct? Correct. We did take a look at the, the arrangements between NASA and the contractors um, and found that there is robust insight into the contractors' activities, especially around um, how they're handling safety issues and the progress that they're making. So the transparency in the relationship between NASA and the contractors was was good. All right. So what are the chief technical problems then? I mean, what's going on, say, with the lander? Because that's kind of essential. If you can't land, you can't get to the moon and the capsule can orbit, but that doesn't do you much good for establishing something permanent. Absolutely. I think the initial testing issues encapsulate the, some of the setbacks. So you saw in recent weeks, SpaceX did a orbital flight test that uh, was more successful than the first one, but still didn't fully meet the objectives. Um, they need to do that an, a number of times to demonstrate the capability of just using the rocket with the, the lander coupled to get into orbit. Once you do that, there are other steps. So that that's the baseline. You have to get that out of the way, and then you can move on to more technically challenging aspects for example, the current concept of operations calls for basically launching a, a gas station in low Earth orbit, right? So the lander goes, it would have to dock with the, the fueling station, transfer propellant, and then ultimately get to the moon and, and be in orbit there to dock with the Orion crew capsule. So that's no easy feat. Um, there's work to be done to demonstrate that capability. All of that takes time, you know, as as you learn from one test, you have to then reschedule and get the FAA certifications, other things that you need 
to do the next test. So It sounds it, like it, the architecture of this program, though, is significantly more complicated because each linkage and each component kind of multiplies the complexity relative to the original space program back in the 1960s. Exactly. And that's getting back to the earlier point. You know, this is really a platform to be able to go to the moon multiple times, support multiple missions. Artemis is planned to extend into the 2030s. So it, it's more complicated than a, you know, a one and done approach. And these capabilities are going to be foundational to supporting that larger sustained effort. We're speaking with Bill Russell. He's Director of Contracting and National Security Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And what does NASA say with respect to why they shaved a year off their plan relative to the, as you report, 79 months these types of complex plans normally take? Well, that was their initial schedule. The analysis of the 13 months is really based on the work that we did comparing that schedule to the average NASA major project. NASA has said that the Human landing system schedule is under review. That that process is ongoing. Well, with respect to launching in 2025, that's not going to happen, is it? Our estimation is that it, it will not. And does NASA agree with that estimation? They're looking at those scheduled dates right now, but they're aware of the challenges that we point out in this report. Right. And so, yeah, what were your recommendations then? How do you simply give yourself more time? Is it a matter of just re-baselining the time? which also means rebaselining the money. Right. And we didn't have any specific recommendations to NASA for this report. Um, we've pointed out in previous reports the need to to look at the integration across all of these systems, right? You have the Orion crew capsule has to work with the space launch system, human landing system. So it's a lot of moving pieces to uh, pull off the Artemis three moon landing. Uh, for this report, it was really just to show the schedule compression and some of the technical challenges that are outstanding to to achieve the eventual mission. And you have different contractors developing these different components. And that's a little different from the old days when NASA built many things in-house by hand with its own people. And is that an issue or do the contractors make sure that they're compatible with one another. I mean, these, there's only one specification that's applicable to one of these types of programs. And so they all have to work in concert in some ways. Is NASA able to orchestrate that? We did take a look at that issue and, and found that so far so good in terms of being able to uh, convey what the requirements are for these systems. The spacesuits is a good example of that. The contractor's axiom, NASA had originally designed the updated spacesuit and then handed that to Axiom to take to the finish line. Um, there's still some design challenges, technical challenges to create the new space suit to support the moon landing mission. There's a lot of aspects like life support and things that, that really have to be perfected. But that's one example of NASA shifting from doing something in-house to having a contractor do it. We did look at the contracts and the terms that allow NASA to still have good visibility and found that those were robust. And getting back to SpaceX, they just had a launch that didn't go, as you said, it went better than the last time, which right. blew up. This one also exploded, I think, eventually. So they're getting there. But at some point, just getting one done, oh, good, it didn't explode. That probably doesn't meet NASA's criteria for, can we do this repeatedly and safely? I mean, that's right. that sounds pretty important. And that speaks to the the volume of the remaining work and the complexity of it. Right. You have to demonstrate 
um, multiple times the ability to get the lander into orbit. And then as I said, move to the next phase, which shows you can uh, dock the lander with that fuel depot that's that's already in space, transfer propellant, and then get to demonstrate that you can get it to lunar orbit. So all of those things remain to be done. Fundamentally, is this realistic that it can all actually happen? I do think it's realistic. The And there's progress that's being made. It's just the, you know, getting from where we are now to successful launch in 2025. That's the part that seems overly ambitious. Yeah, in some ways, this is like a combination of the Apollo program and the space shuttle program in, in terms of just all the working parts to it. That's right. There are a lot of systems that have to work together seamlessly in a, in a new and novel way. And NASA is pretty much uh, on board with what, what it is you're, again, no recommendations, but you're kind of finding things that they don't disagree with. Exactly. Bill Russell is Director of Contracting and National Security at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Great to be here. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many 
different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any 
technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, 
And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.